evangelicals easily fall into a kind of triumphalism. You know, look at the wonderful things we're doing in mission. Uh, we've still got a lot to do, but it's fantastic. And, and we are the people who are going to save the world kind of thing. And John Stott was very concerned that there should be both humility among those who are sharing the gospel and also integrity, uh, that we can't separate um, those who preach the gospel from how the gospel is lived. Mm. And so he says, nothing commends the gospel more eloquently than a transformed life, but nothing brings it into disrepute so much as personal inconsistency. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and in today's episode, we have the privilege to hear from Dr. Chris Wright and Dr. Iva Pubalan, two leading voices in the global evangelical community. Both Dr. Wright and Dr. Pubalan unpack the crucial role that theology plays in shaping global mission. So, if you're a fan of theology and a fan of mission, then this podcast episode is for you. First up, we have Dr. Wright, who serves as the International Director of the Langham Partnership International and is a respected theologian and missiologist. He shares his insights into the core themes of the Lausanne Covenant, the Manila Manifesto, and the Cape Town Commitment, discussing their significant impact on global missions of the past five decades. Let's begin by jumping into our interview with Dr. Chris Wright. Dr. Wright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be with you. Well, let's begin with the Lausanne Covenant. Could you shed light with us on its origins and the intentions behind its original creation? Sure. I wasn't personally there, although mm -hmm. I was aware of it at the time. Yes, it was called originally by Billy Graham. The, it was just in Lausanne, a committee or a consultation on world evangelization. And the goals were to impart vision to the global church, to inform participants of successful methods uh, and tools, to facilitate cooperation among churches and evangelicals in the task of world evangelization, and also to identify unreached uh, parts of the world that needed the gospel. So those were its broad objectives at the time, and it was called by Billy Graham, and then John Stott also was one of the participants, and Ralph Winter as well, who was a fairly outstanding missiologist at that time. Right. And how was the writing and the refining of the covenants undertaken? Well, John Stott was asked to produce a short document some months before the Congress, which he did, and that was then sent to a number of advisors and then and honed a bit. And then during the conference, lots of people were invited to send in their suggestions. And basically, John Stott spent about four or five days without sleep editing it all together into the final draft document that we now have, known as the Lausanne Covenant. So it was an incredible feat of and, and draftsmanship that, that John Stott accomplished, really, in such a short time. I, I could say there is a very good book, which I, I would commend to people if they mm -hmm. want to, you know, back. It's called The Lausanne Legacy, Landmarks in Global Mission. It was edited by Julia Cameron and published uh, by Hendrickson in 2016, The Lausanne Legacy. And it gives all the major Lausanne uh, key documents with some of their backstory and so on. So I've done a little bit of homework on that, but that's a good one to get hold of if people really want to follow it up. Thank you for that, Chris. We are actually working with Julia to republish that for the Soul Gathering. And so it will be available to the participants to download as well. So thank you for highlighting that. Also a brilliant document. So when you reflect back on the Lausanne Covenant, for those who've never heard of it before or never read too deeply into it, what are the key theological principles 
or emphases that you believe are at its core? Well, I think the first thing is that the people who gathered and John Stott and Billy Graham did want to affirm the core biblical Christian evangelical doctrines of the faith as the foundations for a mission, that there's no point in going to evangelize the world if you don't know what you believe. So there are key sections on uh, the purposes of God, the authority of the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the nature of evangelism and so on, the urgency of the task, uh, and then the role of the church and discipling. So it's really comprehensive in those Mm -hmm. terms. But I think theologically what was most outstanding about it was that partly because of the input of a number of participants from Latin America who were younger evangelical leaders in that continent in the 1970s, whom John Stott had met and worked with and traveled with, people like uh, Samuel Escobar and Rene Padilla, that the the emphasis came in that uh, mission is not merely about preaching with the the gospel by words, but has to address the conditions in which people live. It must uh, have a a social dimension. It must engage with where people are. And that came particularly from a continent, Latin America, where there was a great deal of injustice and oppression and tyranny at the time. Uh, And these evangelicals were saying, we, we have to take awareness of that context. So there were two paragraphs in the Lausanne Covenant, which in, in many ways caused the greatest amount of follow-up, where the nature of evangelism, paragraph four, and Christian social responsibility in paragraph five, and they were held together uh, as both being part of the responsibility of the church. That was very much part of John Stott's own personal theology, but it was honed by his relationship with these evangelicals from the majority world. So their input at Lausanne, I think, was really quite critical in this document, alongside the input of Ralph Winter, who at that time was very much pressing for the idea of unreached people groups, that mission was not just to nations as political entities geographically, uh, but to peoples within nations who had not heard the gospel. So there's a very strong emphasis on that, uh, on reaching the unreached, but also on the holistic, integrated nature of mission. Uh, with evangelism and social responsibility being held together. Right. And what impact do you believe that the covenant had on global missions? Well, I think it it, it enabled those who believed what the Lausanne Covenant said to to hold up their heads and say, we we need to recover this sense of mission being holistic, being integrated. Uh, We have sadly, in the first half of the 20th century, separated out things which for evangelicals of previous generations, especially in the uh, 18th, 19th century, they were very committed to the gospel, to evangelism, but also to social reform uh, and to issues of poverty and death and slavery and all of those things. And somehow in the early 20th century, that dichotomized. Uh, and there were those who said, no, mission is only really about evangelism. Uh, and Lausanne, I think, helped to bring the these two sides back together as integral aspects of global mission. And the Lausanne movement ever since has had that in its DNA, that, 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 that mission has that integrated holistic dimension. So the Lausanne Covenant is one of the, the key documents that, that we speak about. But another one that is, is quite big is the Manila Manifesto. And I believe that you were in Manila for that meeting. Could you help us unpack that a bit, shed light on the vision and the motivations that underpinned that document and what unique insights did it bring to the conversation of global mission? Yes, I, I was there in, in 1989, although I was relatively young at the time. I wasn't uh, particularly involved in the in the whole thing as a Lausanne person. I was there partly because I uh, was involved with the World Evangelical Alliance Mission Commission, and uh, that was an interesting part of it. 
1989, of course, was the year before the last decade of the 20th century, the 1990s. Um, and many people were saying this must be a crucial decade for evangelism because we'll come up to the year 2000, 2000 years since Christ. Um, and that seemed to be a significant milestone. Uh, a number of places in the world were saying it should be a decade of evangelism. That was, I think, began in the African church. And indeed, in Manila, there was the beginnings of a movement that became known as AD 2000 and beyond, led by Louis Bush and Thomas Wang and various others. So in many ways, the Manila Manifesto was Lausanne's own attempt to say, well, where are we at in terms of 15 years on since the first Lausanne Congress and coming up to these last 10 years of the century? How can we evaluate that? In some ways, the Manila Manifesto was written by, well, it was edited by John Stott, it's much longer than the Lausanne Covenant, which I think partly was not good for it. It's wonderful reading. I mean, I just recently reread it, and there's some wonderful statements in there. It's very affirmative. It is very humble. It avoids triumphalism. It's lots of things. It's framed around the whole gospel, the whole church, and the whole world. And again, as I said, it says an awful lot of good things. I'm not too sure that there's anything terribly unique about it. One thing that it did definitely do, though, was that it did reaffirm that essential connection between uh, the gospel and social responsibility. Because during the 1980s, after Lausanne, the first Lausanne, there had been a number of consultations around those areas because, of course, the controversy continued between those who wanted to say mission is basically evangelism to the unreached and those who wanted to say mission has to include a social, economic, political dimension. Uh, There was a consultation in Grand Rapids Uh, in 1982 with John Stott as the chair of the Theology Commission on precisely that relationship, the relationship between evangelism and social responsibility, which produced a very fine statement, some of which is reflected in the Manila Manifesto. So, for example, it speaks about, let me just quote, if I may, briefly, quote from the section on the gospel and social responsibility, the authentic gospel must become visible in the transformed lives of men and women As we proclaim the love of God, we must be involved in loving service. As we preach the kingdom of God, we must be committed to the demands of justice and peace. Mm. Uh, So it talks about this uh, partnership between the two, like uh, two blades of a pair of scissors or the two wings of a bird. But it still insists, as John Stott did, on the primacy of evangelism uh, because Christian social action requires socially active Christians. Sure. And therefore, people have to become Christians if they're going to be socially active Christians. So in that sense, he said evangelism has a certain chronological as well as theological priority. Uh, But we are called, it says, to the integration of words and deed. Uh, In humility, we preach and teach. We minister to the sick, feed the hungry, care for prisoners, help the disadvantaged, and so on. We must affirm that the good news and good works are inseparable. So that's quite strongly there in the Manila. The other thing that I liked about the Manila Manifesto is that it continued the Lausanne sense of humility, mm. because one of one of the desires of Lausanne, and certainly my own in Cape Town, will come to in a moment, was that evangelicals easily fall into a kind of triumphalism. You know, look at the wonderful things we're doing in mission. Uh, we've still got a lot to do, but it's fantastic, and and we're the people who are going to save the world, kind of thing. And John Stott was very concerned that there should be both humility among those who are sharing the gospel, and also integrity, uh, that we can't separate um, those who 
preach the gospel from how the gospel is lived. Mm. And so he says, nothing commends the gospel more eloquently than a transformed life, but nothing brings it into disrepute so much as personal inconsistency. And so he, he, he has a big, long section called The Integrity of the Witnesses. That was an emphasis in Manila, which, well, I don't know whether it's been taken as seriously as it should have been, but it is part of that Manila Manifesto. 1989, still well worth reading, although it takes a bit longer than the Lausanne Covenant. Yeah, and I think that the affirmations itself are, are just really good to reiterate into your own life and affirm it within your own self and your own theology. I really love how you pointed out that, that point of integrity. And when we think about Christ's words on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, by, this, by the fruit you will know them, you know? So it's going exactly to the heart of that. And the connection between mission and theology and belief and action, connecting the head, heart, and hands together, I think is pivotal. And that connects deeply into the Cape Town commitment, which you were the chief architect for. And I would love to hear from you. We're now moving towards something that's more personal to, to you and your story. You played a central role in creating the Cape Town commitment. Can you share with our listeners what role you played and the mm. process that was undertaken in developing the Cape Town commitment? Mm. Thank you, Jason. Yes, it, it is a somewhat long story. The, the, there is actually, I think, a recording of some things I said about it on the Lausanne website. Yes. If people want to go there eventually. Yeah, in 2004, Doug Birdsell had become the chief leader of the Lausanne movement, and there was a conference in Pattaya, which I went to, and I was a bit disillusioned at that time because in those years, the sort of the mid-2000s, it almost felt as if Lausanne was petering out. You know, the 82,000 movement had somewhat taken over the energy of global mission. But Doug Birdsell asked if I would take on the leadership of the Theology Working Group of Lausanne, which I did with considerable reluctance and hesitancy, but the encouragement of John Stott himself, who, who had been it previously. And so I, I led the Lausanne Theology Working Group for several years prior to Cape Town 2010, with the result that in, in 2009, Lindsay Brown, who was uh, co-leading with um, Doug Birdsell of the Lausanne Movement, said, we need another kind of statement, a bit like the Lausanne Covenant, but some kind of a statement that will be for global evangelicals. This is what we really believe. They convened a conference in December 2009 with a whole group of international theologians from different continents and countries, men and women, and I was the secretary. Uh, and the goalposts kept moving. We kept coming up with something, and people said, no, that's not quite what we want. And so after three days, as you might expect with a bunch of theologians, we got really nowhere at all. And, and so they, they said to me, to my horror, would I go away and try to craft something which then could be put back to the group? So I went back with this burden of what how on earth can I put something together for these people? And I remember in, in January uh, 2010 uh, that I was driving down to John Stott's retreat in Wales, and I was just asking myself, what is the main thing? What is the very most important thing? What has primacy, if that's the kind of word we want to use? And it was almost as if I heard a voice in my head saying that the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and your strength, and, and your neighbors yourself. It's as if God was saying, look, I told you what the most important thing is. Jesus said it, love God, love your neighbor, and then go on. And so I began to think, I wonder if one could express a theological statement in the language of biblical love, covenant love. And I thought, yes, I love God. I love God's word. I love God's church. I love his world. I, I love the gospel. And so I put these thoughts together, shared it with John Stott, and he said, well, that, that could be quite fresh, quite different. So I thought, well, I've, if I've heard from the Lord and John Stott agrees, it's probably 
<laughs> it, it might well be the right thing to do. So I spent a week crafting and working on what eventually became part one of the Cape Town Commitment, a, a series of statements about God, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and then mission, and the world, and the gospel, and so on, all in terms of love, but using the word love very much in a biblical sense, not just a sort of emotional, romantic sort of way, but a sense of personal commitment to something which then affects the way you live. Mm. Because I wanted to get away from this idea that as evangelicals are very good at statements of faith in the sense of what's in our heads. You know, we, are, we believe this, or we affirm that, or we deny something else. And it's all very conceptual. And I wanted to get back to a more biblical understanding of covenant, which is, if this is what is true, then this is how you must live in the light of it. So even that first and greatest commandment, you love the Lord your God, follows the statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Okay, there's the proposition, the affirmation of the uniqueness and uh, of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But if you believe that, then you must love him with all your heart. So, so the action follows the belief. They're part of the same package. And so I wanted the statement to reflect that. And I hope that's what it is. That was, at least that was part one. That went then back to that group, back to the theology working group. It was honed and shaped and uh, various on. But that was the, how the thing originated. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And it's actually a beautiful, beautifully crafted document that really takes to the heart of love, like you said. How did you guys move from part one, which is mostly about the faith and the belief, to part two, which is focused more on the action? Yeah, um, that, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, just before I do that, though, to say that the, the other thing I wanted to do in, in part one of the statement was to try to bring a more whole Bible approach into writing the thing. Because so many evangelical statements of faith are, are almost entirely quoting New Testament verses, which is mm. wonderful. Of course, they're in the Bible. But I wanted people to see that the, the gospel is not just four spiritual laws to get you to heaven, but the, the gospel is the good news of what God promised and accomplished in the whole of the Bible story, from creation to new creation, through Abraham, through Israel, through the law and the prophets, through Christ and the gospel and the book of Acts. So there, in, even in part one, there's a more narrative biblical Old and New Testament coming through, which again, I think is, is somewhat fresh in terms of the way evangelical statements have been produced. Well, to come to your question, when before we got to the conference in, in Cape Town in 2010, the program committee, of course, had been shaping it around six big areas of mission. And each of those areas was having plenary sessions and workshops and people assigned to write stuff. So I was asked then to convene a statement working group. There was a group of about six of us, again, men and women from different continents, very fine, wonderful bunch of people. And so we sent out a questionnaire to the leaders of all these groups to say, please, would you tell us more or less what you're going to say, if you're prepared already, uh, but what kind of issues you want to get into this uh, statement at the end? Um, what would be the main things you want the church to hear and to know and to do? So already before the conference, we'd got back lots of input from people around those six areas of part two of the statement. When we got to the conference, our hope was we sat together, we met every morning, we divided up where we would go, and we went and listened to things. And then we would meet again in the evening, and we hoped that we could shape something for every day by the next morning. By day two, we knew that was just impossible. <laughs> My description of Cape Town was like standing under the Niagara Falls and trying to catch it in a bucket. You know, it was just impossible. There was just so much going on. 
So as the days were, we, we at least tried to shape what we were doing. We tried to create categories within which we could then uh, put the materials uh, and tried to identify what were the most important things that were being said that we were hearing. Um, and of course, I was then receiving from people in the course of the conference uh, pieces of paper or um, you know Word documents and things with, with their bullet points and what they wanted to get in. I had a, an enormous sense of God's protection at that time. I have to say it was a strange experience because when you're at that point and people know this is the statement group, you know, we've got to get our piece in. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of people coming to you. You could hardly walk out the room without, you know, meeting people who wanted this and that. But I kept on feeling God say, it's okay. Don't worry. I got this. You know, I'm holding your hand. You don't need to be anxious. And so I had a, a deep sense of peace throughout it, even though it was very pressured. So anyway, the conference ended, we had a wonderful act of worship, and I then went away, and I spent really the rest of that year, sort of November, December 2010, and January, February 2011, basically editing all that down and sending the drafts back to, to my group, the statement group, getting their input, also sharing it with Julia Cameron, who was the sort of editor for the, for the thing. And that's how it worked. So the, the part two was, I would put, it was generated by the conference. It reflects the issues that were addressed. Quite a lot of the wording comes directly from those who had spoken or that we received from, shortened, preceded, edited by myself, because obviously you can't include every sort of 800-word piece in a short paragraph. But I did my best to get the gist of what had been said. So if it wasn't sort of in the Congress, then it didn't really feature in, in the commitment part two. But what's in part two did emerge from the, from the conference itself. I would love to hear from you. What do you believe distinguishes the Cape Town commitment from its predecessors, the Luzon Covenant and the Manifesto, in terms of its theolog theological focus and its impact on global missions and the practice of missions globally? Yes, I think one or two things. First of all, I would say there is a very strong element of continuity. I, I don't think mm. there's any major change of direction, but perhaps a certain amount of sort of just slight course correction. It obviously, it, it affirms the same things about God, about the Bible, about Christ and so on that the other two did. There'd be no, no major change of doctrine or anything like that. I suppose I've already said that it has attempted to bring a more, more holistically biblical approach using the Old Testament as, as well as the New and a more narrative approach. In terms of the, the, the theology around the nature of mission, I think the distinctive element of the Cape Town commitment is to both affirm the integration of evangelism and social involvement, but to include also the creation, the environment, our whole world within Christian understanding of what mission is all about. So there's a, a section both in part one and part in section seven and also in part two, which says that the Bible has this kind of triple focus on the individuals, us as individual sinners who need the gospel, who need to be saved, and on society and um, the whole area of our social relationships, economic activity, politics, justice, those issues. The Bible is very concerned about those issues. But there's also a third area, uh, and that is our, our earth itself, the, the world that God created and entrusted into our care. The first great commission that we were given was to, to rule over the earth, to subdue it and to exercise godly kingship and serving the world, uh, caring and keeping in Genesis 2. And so all three of those areas 
individuals and society and creation, they're all broken and affected by sin, and they're all impacted by the gospel because the gospel is good news for the whole creation. God intends to redeem his whole creation. It's there in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Isaiah 65, Revelation 21, 22. So there's, there is a, a whole creational understanding of gospel, which was had really only getting into Christian evangelical consciousness from the 1980s, 90s onwards through movements like the Arosha movement and so on, the Arosha uh, International. And so the Cape Town commitment, I think, is distinct from the other two by adding that dimension to its understanding of mission. So, Chris, it's been over a decade since you have been involved with the Cape Town commitment, writing and forming it, throwing your heart and soul behind it all. I would love to hear, do you have any reflections looking back that you would like to share with our listeners? On the one hand, my involvement with the Cape Town movement was a great joy. It was a huge pressure, but I felt it was something that I was able to do and called by God to do it. It, it had to be because the, the task was just enormous. But I did have a sense that, yes, God wants this to happen. God happens to have given to me some sort of a gift with words. You know, to put a few words together, so you get you often get asked to write things, and if you have a gift, then you use it for the Lord. And so that was what I felt. Um, I think I also was the sense of privilege that Lausanne still holds on to this broadly John Stottian vision of what mission is all about, namely that it's all God has called His church to do with the gospel at the very center. If there's one shift in the language between uh, Lausanne, Manila, and Cape Town, it would be from the language of the, the, the primacy of evangelism to the centrality of the gospel, which is a, a, a term that I prefer, because primacy of evangelism still tends to mean that really is the thing. Uh, and everything else is not just secondary, but somehow out there a little bit peripheral, just the extra stuff. Uh, that Christians ought to do. And sadly, I think that debate still goes on. I mean, one of my reflections is that I do, from time to time, just get a bit weary of being asked the same question that was being asked back in the 1970s and 80s, you know, which do you think is more important, evangelism or social action? I think that's like asking which is more important, breathing or drinking, you know. I mean, you have to do both or you'll die. I mean, they, they are different, they're distinct, but they're part of an integrated holistic system, namely the human body. And in, in a complex system, you've got multiple realities, but they're all essential. They all be held together. You don't ask which is more important, except in some circumstances. So, for example, if somebody's bleeding on the street because they've been knocked down, then you've got to stop their bleeding. Bleeding is more important at that moment than giving them a... So, but as John Stott says, in most circumstances, this distinction between evangelism is conceptual. Uh, it, these things are different, but they all have to be held together. So I do get a bit frustrated when people still keep coming back to this desire to taxonomize and prioritize and say what's most important. Whereas what I want to do is to say, look, if we keep the gospel at the center, and by gospel we mean the truth about what God has done to save the world. It's the gospel of God, as Paul puts it, the good news about God and Christ and what he has done in the whole biblical story. That remains at the center. Then all the other things that we do in the name of Christ, in terms of both speaking the word, communicating the truth, uh, leading people to repentance, faith, and discipleship, serving the world, serving in society, stewarding creation, doing our work day by day, all of those things are not 
marginal and peripheral. Rather, they are integrated, they're held together in a holistic way by the centrality of the gospel, like the hub of a wheel holds the wheel together and connects the engine, which is the power of the gospel. The hub connects the engine to the rim, the, the tire, which is where the rubber hits the road. That's the context. And you have to have this integration between the power of the engine being transmitted through the way in which people live in the world. So we hold all of these things together. So those are my reflections. And I, I like to think that the Lausanne movement still believes all of that, even though, by God's grace, God gives to different people different passions. And so some people are passionately committed to unreached people groups. Bless them. We, we need that commitment for sure. It is a scandal that there are still so many millions of people in our world who've never even heard the name of Jesus. So yes, that has to be important. And other people are passionate about issues of justice and poverty and uh, human trafficking and slavery or, or passionate about caring for the environment and global warming and so on. That's why God created a church. He, he put us all together so that as a community, we are addressing these different issues. And my hope is that Lausanne would continue to be the kind of umbrella catalyst organization which doesn't want to do all the mission, but wants to encourage and bless and give theological credibility to people who are serving in mission in different dimensions. Wow. Thank you for that, Chris. That's, that's quite a challenge from, from your side to us as your listeners. I want to just latch on to some of the things that you've been speaking about. You spoke about the intersection between the gospel and justice and the tension that some people feel in, in that space. But I want to I kind of add to that tension and ask you your opinion. What would you say to someone who, we've been speaking a lot about theology here. What would you say to someone who who's just says, let's stop talking about theology and let's just do missions for those who, mm who don't understand the importance of the theological statements that, that you crafted and understanding and, and all of that, what would you say to someone that's within that space? Well, first of all, I would want to commend them if they're passionate to do something. Uh, God needs people who want to get out and do things. So I, it's, I, I don't want to dampen people's zeal mm -hmm. uh, by any means. But I, I do want to caution people that, you know, Paul did talk about those who have zeal without knowledge. And people who go off with, with, with zeal without any real deep understanding of the nature of God and of the world and of uh, the story of God um, can often get involved in projects which are sort of doomed from the start because they really aren't based on good biblical reflection and theology. Um, so let's not have zeal without knowledge. But um, Doug Birdsell was, was very committed to sort of the two sides of this coin. He said there should be no, no mission without theological reflection but equally, there should be no theology without missional implications. So for too long, we have people who are doing theology without recognizing that the whole point of theology is to serve the church, equip the church for the church's mission to serve God's mission in the world. And that is why one of the things that I didn't actually mention that I think is also a little bit unique in the uh, Cape Town commitment uh, is the integration of um, theological education as a dimension of mission. It actually talks about how there needs to be a partnership between those who are engaged in church planting and evangelism and more traditional understanding of what mission is, and those who are engaged in theological education to see that actually these are part of the same thing. It's the Paul and the Apollos. In fact, one of the sessions that a few of us led at Cape Town was called Every Paul Needs an Apollos, i.e. Paul planted the church in Corinth 
and Apollos watered it with his theological teaching, which you read about in Acts chapter 18. He was engaged in apologetics, Christology, and Old Testament hermeneutics. You just look it up there at the end of Acts chapter 18. But Paul insists, absolutely insists, that the one who plants and the one who waters are one, he said. They're doing the same job. They're both engaged uh, in God's mission. And, uh, and I, so we emphasize there for, in Cape Town that theological education, the whole world of theology, needs to be intrinsically missional. It is actually part of the mission of the church. And the reason I say that is because of the Great Commission. I remember somebody once said to me when I was trying to explain what Langham Partnership is, the organization I work for is Langham Partnership, also founded by John Stott. Uh, and they said, oh, you're not a very missionary organization because we don't send out missionaries. We just engage in supporting theological education and uh, uh, preaching and teaching and so on. And I said, almost felt, I didn't, but I felt like saying, haven't you read the Great Commission, line three, and teaching them, uh, not just baptizing, but teaching, discipling. Uh, and so theological education has to be intrinsically missional and therefore also intentionally missional. Uh, seminaries and courses and so on need to be asking themselves, how is this serving the mission of the church? So we need reflective practitioners, people who do and people who think. Think about what they're doing, people who also see the practical implications of what they're thinking. So the two need to go together. And I would say it's also part of loving God with all our minds. You know, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, yeah. So that's part of what I've dedicated myself to, is the thinking and writing around the biblical theology of mission is what I've done so much of. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you stole my next question, which was, what would you say to someone who is all about theology but doesn't do anything? But you've covered that beautifully already. <laughs> uh, I yeah. love that imagery of reflective practitioners. Uh, thank you for that. I want us to almost um, bring the conversation about the Luzon Covenant and Manila Manifesto and Cape Town commitment to a close as we um, wrap up this interview. And I would like your input just on your reflections. As we look at these three documents collectively, how do they reflect the evolving landscape of global missions over the past few decades? Do you see any specific shifts or emphases that you can trace to these documents or how these documents interact with the culture and the, the times that they were released? Well, I think they are of their time. And I did say that the Lausanne, the original Lausanne 74, I think began a turning point within global evangelicalism from about a half century in which it had retreated into a, some, a somewhat more fundamentalist kind of approach that basically all we've got to do is uh, save as many souls as we can for heaven. And so evangelism is the only priority of the church uh, and had lost something of the strong commitment that evangelicalism was known for, was actually notorious for in the 19th century, certainly in Britain, which was for engagement for reform and social concern for the poor and the needy and so on. And so Lausanne, I think, has been instrumental in enabling the global evangelical church to hold on to or to recover a more uh, I would say, a more biblical, holistic understanding of what the church is for and what the mission is about. Um, it hasn't been universally accepted, of course, but if one looks at the major statements of, say, the World Evangelical Alliance, uh, IFES, Scripture Union, Lausanne itself, and various others, uh, this emphasis is there, that there's an acceptance that this is the case. And I would say that most, uh, probably the majority of, of evangelical writers and scholars would uh, would adopt that sort of position. 
One other little book that I wrote, which people might be interested in, is in 1975, John Stott wrote a book called Christian Mission in the Modern World. 1975, right? One year after Lausanne. And it had five chapters on mission, evangelism, dialogue, salvation, and so on. And 40 years later, IVP asked if I would update it and do a revision. So I took John Stott's five chapters, and in each case, tried to show where the argument had moved on from 1974-75, what John Stott's own thinking had developed in those areas, uh, and then how those issues had developed. So Christian Mission in the Modern World, in the second edition, could be a helpful, um, you know, for, for someone who wanted to follow up, well, what has been the thinking of the global church in that last half century or so since 1974? Thank you, Dr. Wright. We will definitely link to that in our show notes for the listeners who are interested in reading it. Um, as we close this podcast interview, I would love to hear from you. What is your hope and your prayer for Luzon's gathering in Seoul in 2024? My hope would be something similar to what I hoped for Cape Town 2010, which is that uh, we would retain that emphasis on humility and integrity in our mission that we don't allow ourselves to either become so so burdened with the ongoing need that we become, as it were, frantic. You know, there is a difference between being urgent, there is a task to be done, and being so frantic about it that we just go out and have all sorts of big optimistic hopes and plans and stuff which never get fulfilled. So there needs to be you know, care and humility and integrity about it. At the same time, secondly, I, I would hope and pray that we would be able to, uh, in the spirit of the original Lausanne conference, both to inform people of what's going on, to share good practice and to hear from one another around the world because it, it is a world movement uh, and to learn from one another and be humble enough to uh, accept that other people can do things better than we can because mission is now from everywhere to everywhere. It's polycentric, it's global. It doesn't have to be governed or directed from one source. That's, a, I think, a big advantage is that we're seeing that the Holy Spirit is at work in multiple ways all over the world, and it's not just about one part of the world uh, doing mission and other parts of the world receiving it. Uh, and then thirdly, I, I would hope that, as was part of the original vision of Lausanne, that there would be in, inspiring, that there, it would generate a sense of hope. Um, that certainly was what I felt coming out of Cape Town was, well, you know, Jesus showed up. You know, he, he actually was there, and it was almost as if he was saying exactly what he had said to us before he left, which was love one another, <laughs> get more united, stop being so competitive, love one another, and go out and make disciples of the nations. So the mission hasn't changed, and I hope that Lausanne uh, 2024, 50 years after the first Lausanne conference, will preserve that essential DNA, the spirit of humility and integrity and simplicity and hope, because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church, and the future belongs to the kingdom of God. Okay, so those are some of the things that I would be hoping and praying for. Wonderful. Dr. Chris Wright, thank you so much for your time. You've added so much value to myself and I know to the listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Good to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Chris Wright on his reflections on the Lausanne Covenant and the Manila Manifesto, as well as his own personal experience in crafting the Cape Town Commitments. All three documents have shaped global missions in a powerful way over the past few decades. 
Next up, though, we have Dr. Ivor Pubalan, who is the principal of the Colombo Theological Seminary in Sri Lanka and is a member of the Luzon Theological Working Group. Now, while Dr. Wright has spoken into the previous three statements that Luzon has released, Dr. Pubalan and his team in the Theological Working Group are currently in the throes of crafting what has become known as the Soul Statement. And in our time together, he provides insights into the Soul Statement's theological underpinnings, as well as the process he and his team have taken in crafting the statements. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ivor Pubalan. Dr. Pubalan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's a great uh, honor for me to be with you on this conversation. So, Ivan, you've been serving as the principal at Colombo Theological Seminary in Sri Lanka for over two decades. Congratulations for that landmark. How has your experience there shaped your understanding of theology and its practical implications for the church? Thank you. Yes. Theology, as I understand it, is something that's dynamic. Mm-hmm. It is something that's responsive to context. And the seminary that I work in, Colombo Theological Seminary, is on its 30th year. And it was founded by a group of individuals who looked at the situation in Sri Lanka and said, we need a theological seminary that will meet the needs of the church of our day. And so for me, from the time I joined the seminary some 27 years ago, it's been a case of how do we as uh, as a theological institution respond to the crises, the issues, the challenges that the church faces. So for instance, we were, we, we lived through or create civil war and it was at the height of the civil war that the seminary was birthed. And we had to contend with issues like that. And so theology for me is both rooted on the one side, it is rooted to our evangelical faith, to the scriptures, but it must at the same time be responsive. And so for me, I've seen how theology has developed as both rooted and responsive and, and relevant to the context in which we are. Wonderful. And could you let us know how you became involved in the Luzon movement? The Luzon movement actually has been on my heart for as long as I've been a Christian over the last 40 some years, because I've read material from the Luzon movement, the Luzon covenant and so on. But in 2007, I was invited as an expositor when 2010 was being planned in Budapest in, in, in Hungary. And uh, that was my first personal encounter with the Luzon leadership and then attending 2010 in Cape Town. Uh, and they'd be invited uh, to be co-chair of Theology Working Group in 2018. That has been my journey with Lausanne. Wonderful. And a large part of our um, podcast interview today is going to be focusing in on your involvement in the crafting of the soul statement and your involvement in the Theology Working Group. Uh, could you just explain to our listeners your role in the, theolo- the Theological Working Group? and within the Lausanne movement and within context of the Fourth Congress itself. Yes. When you look back at the Lausanne movement coming into our 50th year now, it has always had this strong commitment to theological underpinning. I believe that's what John Stott brought to the movement as one of the founders of the movement. That's what the church made. It must be anchored in sound biblical theology. And I think beginning with John Stott and then moving on to Leighton Ford, who chaired the Theology Working Group, I believe there was Timothy Tennant and then Chris Wright and others who have given leadership and always kept the theological anchor of the movement very strong. And so we are really delighted. My co-chair is Victor Maka from Zimbabwe and South Africa. And we are really delighted to have the privilege of 
helping the Lausanne movement continue this tradition of theological grounding. And usually when it comes to the Congresses, 1974, and then of course the Manila Congress in 1989 and Cape Town in 2010, there has always been an extra pause given to the Theology Working Group to produce a statement. And there have been three wonderful statements that have been produced. And so in 2024, the Lausanne leadership has decided that there will be another statement released called the Soul State. And so that's the work that we are currently engaged in as a PWG. And we have interviewed Chris Wright to discuss the previous three. And I would love for us to talk a little bit deeper about the soul statement, which is, which is the process you are undertaking right now. Could you yeah. walk us through the journey that you and your team and the theology working group are undertaking in order to develop the soul statement for the Lausanne Congress in Seoul 2024? And what are the key steps that, and considerations that are involved in the process? So when we began to talk about Lausanne L4, together with the Lausanne leadership, one of the things we asked ourselves as a TWG and also with our leaders like Michael Lowe and David Bennett was, is there a need for a soul state? That was the first and foremost question because we shouldn't be simply doing a statement because there's always been a state. And as we grappled with that, we came to the conclusion that there was. And the reason is, as I said at the beginning, theology is dynamic. There is no static theology. You cannot take theology from 50 years ago and say that would be totally adequate and relevant for today. Because theology is essentially taking biblical truth and responding to the context and the challenges of the day. Mm. And so we recognized that as L4 was being planned, although it's held in 2024, the Lausanne leadership was looking forward amazingly as far as 2050 and looking at a generation that many of us may probably not see and saying, how can the church be relevant for 2050? And so there was definitely that conviction that we need to speak to those challenges of the present and in the immediate future. And so in that sense, once we were convinced that there should be a response to the challenges, we asked, what are the challenges that are really critical that may have been not addressed in the previous state? So our task is not to simply abstract, write an abstract statement. We want to ground ourselves in the three documents, the Luzan Covenant, Manila Manifesto, and the Cape Town Commitment. And in a way, assume that is our grounding, but also what are some very important critical challenges facing the church. And so we came up with, identified some gaps that we believe needs theological reflection and theological explanation. And that, those gaps, we've identified four major gaps as we see, and we've broken up into different teams and working on each of those individual gaps. And hopefully with that work and with other big sections planned, we should be able to have the statement ready in time found it. Wonderful. What in your perspective is the impact and the importance of crafting theological statements like the soul statement for the global evangelical community? You know, the global evangelical community is always in need of a clear articulation of the faith. What is the faith? You know, in the New Testament, as the New Testament church develops, we see there's a development of sound doctrine. Uh, in the early days, they had the apostles explaining every question that they probably asked. But as, as time goes on, you find words a lapper or writings of the New Testament. There is this phrase coming up, 
pattern of sound teaching or pattern of sound doctrine. So it becomes very important for the very young church to have a body of truth that they could appeal to and say, this is cool, this is critical, this is what defines our Christian faith and makes us stand out from the aberrant versions of the faith. And so the evangelical community of every generation has to safeguard this body of sound teaching, else the church will then mislead itself. And so in that sense, what the Luzon movement has done is made this a global conversation. And as, as uh, is well known, the Time, Time magazine in 74 reported apparently that the Lausanne movement was called, Lausanne Congress was probably the largest gathering of Christian leaders from across the world in history. And that, that concept of bringing the whole global church together and saying, let's agree on what's really important for evangelization and evangelical truth. And that conversation needs to be constantly updated so that we do not find ourselves drifting, as the book of Hebrews says, from, from the anchor, from where we should be anchored. So I think that's the primary responsibility of the state monks of the church globally. Could you maybe shed some light on the diversity of the group that you have helping you develop the soul statement? We are about 30, 29 to 30 uh, members uh, in the TWG network. And we are very uh, thankful that uh, it's quite a diverse group. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, those from South America, North America, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, and then of course the, the parties like Japan and Korea, Vietnam, and so on. So we are really thankful for that diversity. We've also tried hard to make sure there is gender diversity. And we, we have men and women, although there are more men than women, or also age diversity. We try to make sure there are some younger theologians, along with experienced, much older theologians. And this diversity has been a very important strength and a kind of, a, in a way, a very important guide that uh, we are uh, moving in the right direction when it comes to uh, the challenging questions that we discuss. Uh, for some time before the soul statement planning happened, one of the big things we did was a series of webinars on fake gospel. And there we had the privilege of hearing voices from all parts of the globe talking about false teachings, therefore happening in different contexts, and then to see the common threads of responding to those things. So it's been a real privilege to work with some very skillful, experienced men and women, and yet at the same time to see this amazing unity and of sharing of ideas, or it has been a real blessing to, to be part of this fellowship. You've already spoken a bit about how the soul statement builds upon the Luzon Covenant, the Manila Manifesto, and the Cape Town Commitment. Could you share with us how you foresee it differing from those three documents? Yes. Also, as I said, one of the key questions we asked was, what is it that we have to contribute to the global church at this point? And we recognize that there were a few very critical areas. And if I might mention those, we identified four theological gaps. One is the gap which we call evangelical hermeneutic. So well, the difference between 1974 and 2024, we believe, is that in 1974, the evangelical church had to defend the authority of Scripture that the whole scripture was inspired and authoritative. 
Today, that doesn't seem to be the great challenge. Today, the great challenge is how do we get interpretation of this authoritative? Because with the proliferation of false teaching, you will find that many people who actually teach something that is aberrant or unbiblical will do it with a great claim to adhering to the authority of scripture. As I would often say, they, they may carry a bigger Bible than you and I. So the question then becomes, what is a valid evangelical interpretation of scripture? And so the issue of hermeneutics comes in. And the church globally needs some guidance on how do we establish that what we are hearing or what we are reading or what we are encountering in the churches is actually a valid interpretation of the text. And that, that needs some reflection and some methodologies to be agreed on. The second is theological anthropology. We recognize that throughout the centuries, the church has developed its theology due to crises, whether it was a crisis about the doctrine of God or the nature of Christ or about the Holy Spirit or about the, you know, in, in times, every time there was a challenge to our understanding of that, the church then sharpened its theology. But we kind of recognize that this has never come up before as a major issue. And that is, what is our doctrine of humanity? What does it mean, mean to say that we are human? Theologically speaking, and although we have a basic biblical understanding, the challenges today are far greater. For instance, the challenge of identity and gender and sexuality, all it pinges on this question of what does it mean to be human? The challenge of AI and the, 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 the fast strides in technology and you know the interface between technology and humanity. What does it mean to be human? Then when we look at the churches in the growing majority world where the churches are growing and you have first generation Christians, you also have a lot of teachers who are claiming all kinds of things about what their salvation has done to them as human person. Some of them striding the earth like a great colossus, I would say, claiming that they're almost just within touching distance of God as it were, almost like God's own, you know, particular individuals striding the earth. And so there is a sort of an over-realized eschatology, like we have now achieved everything, the super apostle type of doctrines that are floating around. So in that context, we have to ask, what does it mean to be human? Can we have a, a more robust understanding of our anthropology? A thought has really arisen from, from, the, from our history as an evangelical community. And that is a contradiction in terms of our commitment to mission and our lack of Christian character. That is that you could have people who are leading major Christian initiatives in the world who are then found to have been very poorly in terms of how they understand holiness and the integration of holiness with mission. And we feel that there is a big lacuna there that needs addressing, needs theological reflection. How is it that those who are most committed to the proclamation of the good news can also be sometimes be synonymous with scandal. And we want to address that. And that's a tough one, but an urgent need. And then, of course, fourthly, the challenge of technology. Do we have a theology of technology? Or are we looking at technology as just a pragmatic tool that is out there and we just use it? And most of us will just speak of technology as if it's just a tool. 
But as uh, Jonas Kohlberg shared with me, the leader of that team, that they are looking more at how technology is also culture and how does that affect the way we think about technology. So those are some of the gaps that we are addressing. But perhaps in our last and only in-person meeting, which was in March this year, one of the things that came together for us is that we really think there's a need to talk about what does it mean to be the local church and the centrality of the church in the vision of God. And although the previous documents speak about that and do excellent work, we want to give more attention to the local church and, and talk about, you know, how the church must be viewed as God's goal, as it were, of the biblical story. Thank you, Doctor, for, for sharing that. And even as I start reflecting on those principles and themes in my own context, I can see the gaps as you are mentioning each of them. And right. I really look forward to reading the soul statement once you guys have uh, fully gone through the process of prepping it and, and sending it out to the rest of us. I, I would love for us to chat about looking beyond the fourth Congress in 2024. How do you envision, or what would be your hope for the soul statement influencing the discussions and actions within the global evangelical community beyond Soul 2024? So as I said, these issues and deals that we are discussing and hoping to include in the statement, we hope will become a conversation started. For example, will the global Christian community develop a healthy, or understanding of the local church, especially as we have gone through COVID and there is now a confusion. What does it mean to be church? Are we an embodied group or can we simply zoom in and have church? Or, and uh, there is the rise of the nuns, the girls who disaffiliate from Christian identity or church membership. Or there is such an important uh, conversation there. You know, is there is the sac sacrament essential? Are we a sacramental community? And so, one would be that we will see healthy local churches and the default will be that every Christian sees him or himself or herself as an active member of a local Christian community, a witnessing, worshipping Christian community. And that would be a place of help in a time of confusion. Then, of course, as we know, around, across the world, the issue of identity is really splitting Society, splitting families, actually wreaking havoc. Identity, gender, sexuality, all bound in, the, in that issue of identity. But we are hoping that having a good understanding of the biblical view of humanity will temper us and sober us in that way so that we will be able to speak to the next generation without on the one side, you know, just speaking across purposes or refusing to listen on the other side, shying away from addressing these issues, especially with young people who are desperately asking for, for guidance, biblical guidance in these areas. Uh, as we look at the growing church across the world, one of the things that really concerns us is that we have the fastest church growth in history. In the last 100 years, according to Dr. Timothy Tennant, we've had explosive church growth. And today we can see in Iran and China and Nepal and other places in South America and Africa, tremendous growth of the church. But that has meant that for the first time since the times of the early centuries, there is indigenous church growth 
that is not the extension of Christendom. And so you have first-generation Christians in multiplied millions. But they are also like those first centuries, very vulnerable to false teaching and false teachers. And because we lack discipleship, because we haven't really emphasized discipleship as much as we have emphasized evangelism, these young believers are hugely vulnerable or to false teaching, just like it was in those first few centuries. But in those centuries, we read of Irenaeus and Athanasius and all these people who champion war, the truth of the scriptures. But we will need that kind of championing again so that the harvest is not lost. Even in the early centuries, you had Marcionism and Arianism almost overtaking the church. And perhaps we are in that crossroad. And we are hoping that there will be conversations about how to defend the faith as much as declare the faith. So we are hoping that well, the global conversation will grow and we will not only go on about declaring the faith, which is so important, but concurrently defending the faith as well so that we do not lose the young converts to, to false teaching. And then, of course, the big one, technology. How do we... We are hoping that as technology rapidly advances, and now we are all about AI and chat GPT and all of that. Definitely, we want to be a little ahead of the curve as we are, uh, where we are currently, to be able to get the church to be more proactive in responding to technology rather than reactive. So how can the church be more informed, more theologically guided, so that when technology turns up, we are not kind of, again, taken by surprise and you know, getting into our ghettos or burying our head in the sand, but rather really understanding it and knowing how to navigate our way through a tech world. So these are some of the ways I think that uh, the statement could help foster some conversation. Uh, and then, as I said, definitely we are looking at uh, a very different church uh, in terms of our commitment to holiness. There is no way that we can uh, win the world to Christ if we are not committed to biblical holiness. And what does that look like? What will that demand of us? We cannot only be talking numbers. We have to talk Christian character, Christian life, community, accountability to the gospel and so on. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, which we hope the statement will be a part of that stimulus. Thank you. I'd be curious to hear from you. Either you are a principal at a seminary Let's say that there was a first-generation Christian, a young person that came to you and they, were, they asked you to give them a piece of advice to how to grow in their faith, to be able to continue in their faith in the next decade and beyond. What pieces of advice would you give a young convert or a young person who is a Christian in this age? We do have a number of such young people in our seminary who come from other faiths, from Hinduism and Buddhism particularly. And when they come to faith, one of the big vulnerabilities for them is that they do not have a Christian worldview. They come with a different worldview. Of course, they will embrace Christ, they embrace this new faith, but their worldview is still very much that old worldview. And so for us, one of the first things we try to impress on young believers is that they need to reconstruct their worldview using a biblical framework. And that often is the, is the key moment when they realize, oh, wow, this is how this whole thing works. Otherwise, they are struggling to understand how to live Christianly because they're operating out of 
you know, a non-biblical worldview, if you like. But also the importance of community, the importance of being committed to the Christian community, wherever they are, the local church. So at the seminary, our students uh, all come from a local church or Christian organization and must be recommended to study at a seminary. No one can individually decide uh, that they wish to. This is all part of encouraging the individual and the corporate to be integrated. So we try to strengthen uh, that idea of being submissive to a community and learning from one another. Uh, and then, of course, the, the spiritual disciplines of small groups and Bible reading uh, and thinking Christianly. These are the things that we will talk about when we uh, get down. Thank you for that. Thank you for those reflections. On, on one more personal note, as we begin to bring this podcast interview to a close, how has your involvement in the Theology Working Group and the developing and the crafting the soul statement impacted your own theological journey and understanding? Uh, how has it resonated with you at a personal level? Yes. So all the theme, themes that I've talked about have been impactful for me. They have reinforced my own commitment to those uh, very things. So it's been very a great blessing for me. For instance, uh, when you're in a seminary, uh, it is very easy to sort of uh, be absent from the local church because the seminary professor sometimes is not seen as someone who needs to get involved. But I have always felt that it's very important for us as those who work in seminaries or whatever ministry we do, parachurch, we call it, that we must never have a parallel using our ministries as a parallel church. So the commitment to the local community to be part of that, we, uh, I teach hermeneutics and so on in the seminary and uh, realize that this has to be now moved from a seminary level to the level of the Christian congregation so that everyone is able to do sufficient hermeneutics, even if you don't use that word. You know, everyone naturally interprets scripture with a certain sort of skill set on these kinds of things that have been very resonant to me. But also, as I said, the, I've really been troubled by the fact that we have not given enough uh, attention to our Christian character and holiness and disciple-making, which I believe is an urgent priority for the church. Uh, and I think in our global conversations of the Lausanne movement, they've identified discipleship and disciple-making as the top weakness of the church today, the top need of the global church. In all the listening calls, they summarize the number one need is for the churches to have discipleship and disciple-making. And I think that really corresponds with what I have we've been talking about in the TWG about discipleship and holiness and Christian character. So, yeah, so these have been very close to my heart as well. And I hope very much that these priorities will once again emerge in the church as we go forward. Connecting to that thought, if you had a, a pastor sitting across the table from you and he heard everything you were saying about the need for discipleship and holiness and developing Christian character, and he says, yes, I want to see that happening within my local community, what pieces of advice would you give him as he begins to think about discipling his own congregation? Yeah. One of the things that I have or often try to help pastors do is to move away from a program mentality. Because programs have become the standard fare that every the local church becomes about program. You have Sunday services, you have 
Bible study programs, you have special seminars, and pastors are so tired of managing program after program. And the problem with that is that every program kind of has a, a depreciating, there's sort of a depreciating, you know, value in that sense. The next one has to be much bigger, has to be more exciting, but rather to help pastors to know that even though committing themselves to discipling a few could seem like a huge, colossal waste of time that on the long term, the biblical the model actually works. That if they could help build a few and keep building people in the faith, that they will then accomplish the goal that they have, which is to touch many more people with the gospel. So I try to encourage pastors to not feel bad about being small as long as they're doing the right things and, you know, making sure that building the values of Bible knowledge and Bible understanding and faithfulness, because they're so, so pressure to show numbers. I think that has become kind of global where pastors are constantly under pressure to show that their church is growing. But what it means is, has it got more than it had last year rather than has it got deeper? I like something that Victor Nakar says that the church in Africa, being an African, he says that the church in Africa could be one inch deep and uh, one mile wide, you know, that, that there's a lot of brick, but no depth. And that's true of our part of the world as well. And we want to promote the commitment to depth. So, I mean, that's something that I learned as a young Christian worker, where I, as a youth worker, I asked the Lord, what am I to do? I can do program program, but it seemed like you could never, you know, never be satisfying yourself because you need to do something better next time. And I just thank God how he led me to Colossians 1 verse 28, which says that Paul says, with all the energy in me, I strive to present every person perfect in Christ Jesus. And that commitment to the single person became a sort of a very important piece of advice that God provided for me. And uh, I found that giving myself to that priority eventually led to the ministry actually growing and reaching more young people, but without compromising the commitment to uh, discipleship. Wow. Thank you for those insights. There's a lot to think about, a lot to process. And I'm sure that some pastors and even workplace leaders and, and normal Christians will take that to heart. As we close, I would love to hear from you. What is your hope and your prayer for? The soul gathering in 2024. This is, I mean, always the Luzon Congresses are amazing for me. 2010 was an amazing gathering. This time, the, the participant selection team has been doing a fantastic job. And they've, got, they've been oversubscribed in a way, more than they can accommodate, I believe. But it's fantastic to see so many enthusiastic leaders coming together. But for many younger leaders, this will be the first time they will experience a gathering of this sort. And my hope is that we will be able to inspire that younger leadership to be confident to go back to their countries and take leadership. I fear that we who are older sometimes do not trust the younger leaders to take on and lead the church. But it is my hope that this time around, more women, more younger leaders have been brought into the Congress. And it's hope that my hope, as I look forward, that we will see an amazing crop of young leaders taking over the responsibilities of the global church and helping us to innovate and helping us to be more relevant to the challenges that are being faced. So 
really Yamna leadership of the oh, churches yeah. globally. Wonderful. Ivor, with that, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for the value that you've added to everyone that's listening. And we are praying with you and for you and your team as you continue to develop and craft this whole statement. Thank you, Jason. It's been a privilege and I'd be like to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, please take a moment to subscribe and share this interview with your friends. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. While this week we spoke about all things theology, next week we are speaking about collaborative action. Here is a clip from my interview with Yuri Creel. The thing that we're on the, on the verge of is this idea of taking action together. I believe that there's a collaborative action that's about to take place in the church. That never before have a generation been at this brink of being able, the church has never had more resource. The church has never been more connected. The, our ability to connect to the entire planet, to every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world has never been greater than what it is right now. And never in its history has that church had greater resource, greater information, greater products, greater ways of explaining the truth. And we're, we're ready to go. If we can remove the duplication and work in synergy, I'm convinced that as a generation, we can fulfill the task given to us by the great commission in our generation well if you're at all passionate about fulfilling the task of the great commission in our generation then i want to encourage you to join us for next week's episode on collaborative action if you haven't yet please take a moment to rate and review our podcast until next week cheers <laughs>